From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. I have been a minister for about 20 years, and over the course of my ministry, including my life uh, before that, uh, my faith has evolved. It's changed. It's moved in many different directions. And I owe that uh, to many people who have opened my eyes to new insights. For me, the Christian faith uh, is no longer about heaven and hell or praying to a supernatural being or hoping that uh, God will save us from tornadoes or any of those kinds of things. In fact, I'm light years away from that these days. And I'm finding that a lot of people have similar questions. We're going to tackle the big ones today. My guest is Marcus J. Borg. He's the author of Speaking Christian, uh, Why Christian Words Have Lost Their Meaning and Power. Uh, Dr. Borg is a member of, a founding member of the uh, Jesus Seminar in Search for the Historical Jesus. He is now the canon theologian at Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon, and he is on Religion for Life uh, today, and very excited to have you here, Dr. Borg, and I have three big-ticket questions for you. Uh, within this new, uh, new paradigm of speaking Christian, uh, the big items seem to be how we understand the Bible, how we understand Jesus, and how we understand God. So if we can just tackle all three of those in about 10 minutes. Um, but one of the changes in looking at Christianity is that uh, the Bible becomes a human book as opposed to a divinely created or revealed book. And people may say, once you go there, the Bible has no more value than any other book. But what, in your view, gives the Bible value and status, even as it has a human composition? Well, for Christians, the Bible has its status because our spiritual ancestors a long time ago declared this particular collection of books to be sacred, to be the source of Christian identity and understanding, and to be Christian means to be in a continuing dialogue with this particular collection of documents, just as being Muslim means to be in a continuing dialogue with the Quran. So to say the Bible is the product of our ancient ancestors doesn't mean, well, we might just as well, you know, put it in the same category as Tolstoy's War and Peace then. It has status for us. It is sacred in its status and function, is the way I put it, for mm -hmm. Christians, but not in its origin. I think we have confused sacred and status and function with sacred and origin for a long time. For some people, if the Bible doesn't come directly from God, then it's not worth anything. And that just seems like such a strange position to me, except when I think about how um, many people do uh, long for an absolute authority in their lives. Uh, conservative Catholics do this, of course, with uh, the infallible uh, teaching hierarchy of the Church. Uh, some Protestants do this with an infallible scripture, but I think to ascribe infallibility and inerrancy to the Bible says more about the human need for security than it does about the origin of the Bible itself. 
You know, I'm wondering if maybe you can help me a little bit with a practical aspect of this. I, my denomination, as of course is the Episcopal Church, uh, struggling over the place of gay and lesbian people within the life of the church. And, uh, and I often hear again and again in these debates, well, that's the authority of the Bible is at stake, and it's just an obvious answer. Um, here it is, and they'll quote something from Romans 1 or, or whatnot. And I'm wondering, that doesn't seem to be very, well, deep in terms of regarding the Bible's testimony. And uh, how, how would you approach, rather than not even give an answer one way or the other, or you could, but how would you approach that question in a deeper sense of an historical metaphorical understanding of the Bible? Well, I would point out, uh, and so many people have said this, uh, that the Bible says far less about homosexuality than it does about, let's say, divorce and remarriage. Obviously, in terms of number of references, homosexuality was not a huge issue for these ancient communities. Then I would grant that, of course, the passage in Leviticus and the passage in Romans 1 tell us that um, in the case of Leviticus, that in ancient Israel, homosexuality was um, not considered to be appropriate behavior. And the passage in Romans 1 from Paul, uh, interestingly enough, that's in a list of vices, so it's not clear that Paul is saying homosexuality is especially bad. He's simply doing a rhetorical list of the vices of the Gentile world. But there's a very good chance that, of course, Paul thought that... Um, homosexuality was uh, wrong behavior. So we start off by saying, well, these passages tell us what these ancient people thought. And then, of course, one can go on to quote passages from both the Old Testament and the New Testament that say slavery is okay, mm -hmm. and passages that prohibit um, uh, wearing garments made of two kinds of cloth, which would mean blends are out, okay? And very few Christians take those seriously. So anyway, the basic approach, though, this is the historical approach, is the Bible tells us what our spiritual ancestors thought. It contains their wisdom as well as their limited vision. And it's up to the discerning Christian community in every time and place to make decisions about how much of what our ancestors thought continues to be valid and authoritative for us today. I'm, uh, I, I, I'm kind of working on a list of X number of things I wish every Christian knew, uh -huh. and I don't have my whole list ready yet. But on that list is the simple statement the Bible is sometimes wrong. Hmm. I wish every Christian knew that. And I think Christians have been reluctant to say that, partly because it sounds like trashing the Bible. But as long as there is this almost taken-for-granted reverence for whatever the Bible says, we will continue to have struggles within the Church about whether the current example of uh, whether gay and lesbian people can be fully Christian, whether they can be ordained, and so forth. If I can give a couple of quick examples of the Bible is sometimes wrong, um, in 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter, the first few verses, 
we're told that God commanded King Saul to slaughter all the men, women, and children, and animals of the Amalekites, the neighboring people. Now, can anybody believe that God ever told anybody to kill all the men, women, and children of a neighboring people? They were at war, of course. And, or to go back to the slavery example, was slavery ever the will of God? I just think it's enormously important and helpful to be able to say the Bible is sometimes wrong. And of course, it is the discerning Christian community that makes decisions about that. It's not just, you know, an individual Christian picking and choosing. I think you've probably heard the quip about cafeteria Christians mm -hmm. who just take what they like. Uh, no, it's the discerning Christian community that, uh, uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, if you will, and the Spirit is still speaking, um, makes decisions about how much of this ancient material is still relevant and applicable and authoritative for our time. Dr. Marcus Borg has uh, worked uh, with the Jesus Seminar uh, in the uh, uncovering and uh, looking for discerning the voice print of Jesus, the historical Jesus. And, and I want to uh, talk with you in a second in the, in the light of your new book, Speaking Christian About Jesus. Uh, let me get to the question this way. Some within the Jesus Seminar, and I wrestle with this myself, uh, after making some intelligent guesses about the historical person, are willing to let the rest of it go. Um, the post-Easter Jesus uh, seems to have little or at least less value than the historical person. But you don't want to throw that out. Uh, what's, what is the value of the whole of it for you? And, 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 and perhaps if you could tell us, who is Jesus for you? Mm -hmm. I think the distinction between the pre-Easter Jesus and the post-Easter Jesus is a very important one. And the pre-Easter Jesus um, means simply Jesus as a figure of history, flesh and blood human being, mortal, he was born, he was killed, uh, not different in kind from you and me, different in degree. I sometimes say he was one of the two most remarkable people who ever lived, and when people press me about who the other one was, I say, I really don't care. I'm simply making the point that the pre-Easter Jesus was a flesh and blood human being. The post-Easter Jesus, on the other hand, is, and here the language gets difficult, a non-material reality, a spiritual reality, one with God, like God, capable of being experienced anywhere and everywhere a reality whom people continue to experience to this day, but very different from the pre-Easter Jesus. No longer a flesh and blood human being who weighed 110 pounds and was five feet tall, that's the average size of mm. a man in that world. But this, um, uh, you could speak of the post-Easter Jesus as God seen in the face of Jesus. And it's the post-Easter Jesus who is spoken of in the New Testament as the light of the world, the bread of life, the resurrection and the life, and so forth. And all of that language is enormously meaningful to me. 
So I have no interest in getting rid of everything that can't be traced back to the pre-Easter Jesus. Um, for me, um, both are utterly central to the Christian life. And so um, the idea of, of prayer, uh, either liturgically or privately, to uh, the post-Easter Jesus is of value to you? Uh, yes. My own natural prayer language is to address God rather than Jesus. Mm-hmm. But I have no problem with uh, Christians whose natural prayer language is addressed to Jesus. Uh, that's the beauty of the Trinity, in a way. Whether we talk about the Holy Spirit, or the post-Easter Jesus, or God, we are talking about the same reality under different names. Speaking Christian, Why Christian Words Have Lost Their Meaning and Power is the title of a book by Marcus J. Borg, who is my guest on Religion for Life. And Dr. Borg, my third of the big ticket questions is this one. Uh, One of my guests has been physicist Lawrence Krauss, uh, author of The Universe from Nothing, and he states that uh, we don't need the concept of God to understand the universe or its origins. And I, I tend to cringe when theologians argue with him because, to tell you the truth, he comes across to me as, as, as right or, or more believable. And yet, while my mind has trouble with God, I, I seem still to have a heart for God. Uh, what are some of the options that you have found helpful in talking about God in this new way of speaking Christian and in our new understanding of the universe? Well, um, of course, I didn't hear your in- interview with uh, the physicist you just mentioned. But I would tend to agree with him that we do not need the notion of God as an explanatory hypothesis for how the universe came into existence. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think every attempt to prove the existence of God by saying, well, there had to be something before the Big Bang, or uh, you never get something from nothing, or all those arguments, it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe but I'm not impressed by them. For me, um, the word God does not refer to a supernatural person-like being separate from the universe. And most attempts to prove the existence of God assume that that's what we're trying to prove. But that's not what the word God means for me. Rather, What the word God means for me is equally as ancient as uh, the notion of supernatural theism. But the word God for me refers to, to use William James's term from 100 years ago, the more or a more. And the reason for taking God or the sacred seriously for me is that that more, that non-material reality, is sometimes experienced. And the most dramatic of these experiences are called mystical experiences. Um, These are experiences in which the people who have them have an overwhelming sense of having encountered the sacred. Sometimes these are eyes-open experiences in which we see the same landscape or the same room full of people that we, we would be seeing anyway. But it's as if everything 
is filled with light. Uh, not that things become transparent, but they virtually glow. This is what the Bible means when it speaks of the whole earth being filled with the glory of God. And the word glory, especially the glory of God in the Bible, means radiance or luminosity or even radiant luminosity. And there are experiences in which people see things that way. And I've had some of those myself, and I'm very grateful for them. I don't claim any kind of spiritual superiority because of those experiences. But ever since those experiences, the reality of God is so obvious to me. It's just that most of the time, um, we live in a kind of blindness, but there are those moments in which our eyes are opened and we behold the glory of God. One other thing, if I may. Mm -hmm. For me, the most satisfactory way of thinking about God, and it's very biblical, uh, you, you can find, of course, biblical language that speaks of God as a person like being separate from the universe, but that's the language of metaphor. But there's this other way of speaking of God in the Bible. The most concise expression is in Acts 17:28, words attributed to Paul. And uh, listen to how the language works. God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Where are we in relationship to God? We are in God. We move within God. We have our being within God. God is all around us and not somewhere else. And this notion is also wonderfully expressed around the year 200 by an early Christian theologian. I think it was Clement of Alexandria. God contains everything and is contained by nothing. Everything is in God, and yet God is more than everything. And it was in my 30s that I began to think about God in those terms. And then, as I briefly mentioned, realized that this is not a modern way of thinking about God. This is as ancient as the Bible and the other ancient religious traditions of the world as well, for that matter. And so once one, let goes, once one lets go of the notion that the word God refers to a supernatural being who may or may not exist, but instead refers to this luminous, radiant, glorious dimension of reality that we sometimes experience and that draws from us the exclamation, oh my God, then the whole question of God becomes completely different. It's not, is there another being? But the question becomes, what is this? Meaning this that is all around us. Is it simply the space-time world of matter and energy? Or is it a glorious, radiant mystery with a capital M that our words can at best stumble and stammer in front of, and uh, and then to make that um, both personal and practical, 
for me, the Christian life is about centering more and more deeply in the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And for Christians, of course, the character of the one in whom we live and move and have our being is revealed most fully in what Jesus was like, because who Jesus is for Christians. The decisive revelation of what God is like, of what this radiant, glorious reality is like. And if I can add one more thing right now, back to the Bible for a moment. Mm -hmm. How do we know when the Bible is right or wrong? The answer for Christians is, Jesus is the norm of the Bible. The Word become flesh, the revelation of God as we know it in Jesus, trumps the Bible whenever they disagree, and they do disagree sometimes. And that language that we use for God also is the language for ourselves, isn't it? Our, our values and our passion, um, our desire to transform ourselves, um, uh, and uh, to more peaceful, just people uh, uh, as individuals and as, and as a society. And, and in your last chapter of Speaking Christian, uh, you talk a little bit about um, what's at stake uh, for this, for a, a new way, perhaps, a new old way of understanding Christianity as opposed to an old way, especially not, a, not only for Christianity, but for, uh, but for our society, for our country. Can you just talk a little bit about what is at stake? Yeah, um, I think I make a number of connections in that chapter, uh, though I haven't reread it since I wrote it. <laughs> and among the things, though, I say is that a fear-based religion and a fear-based politics commonly go together. Mm -hmm. And therefore, a form of Christianity that really emphasizes heaven and hell is a fear-based Christianity. And it usually leads to a fear-based orientation toward the world. And Lord knows the contemporary American culture is, to a large extent, a fear-based culture, whether it's fear of terrorism, fear of big government, uh, fear of not looking good enough, and it goes on and on and on. Another connection I make is the basic choice between whether we think God is violent or nonviolent. And people who think of God as violent, whether punishing people in this life or in the world to come or both, they're more likely to legitimate violence in the world. And if you think that God is nonviolent, then uh, you're more likely to be suspicious of uh, the cases that are made for we need to become more violent or more secure militarily or whatever. So there's a lot at stake in how we think of what I call the character of God, what we think God is like, and the passion of God, what God's passion for the world is. And my own conviction is that God's passion for the world is a world of justice, and in the Bible, justice is almost always about economic justice, basically means fairness, 
not that everybody should get exactly the same, but that everybody should have enough of the material basis of existence, not as the product of charity, but as the product of the way the world is put together. Mm-hmm. And the other part of God's passion, according to the Bible, is a world of peace. And I very much like a phrase that I got from an African-American uh, woman theologian named Berna Dozier, the dream of God and Desmond Tutu has started using that phrase now as well. And according to the Bible, the dream of God, God's dream for the world, is a world of justice and peace. And if we see that as God's character and passion, then it's very much going to affect how we live our lives, including our political lives. So there is a lot at stake in how we think about God, how we understand our language about God, and how we understand our language from the Bible and about Christianity. And Christian language has been our topic. Marcus Borg has been my guest on Religion for Life. His book came come from his 2011 book is Speaking Christian, Why Christian Words Have Lost Their Meaning and Power and how they can be restored, an excellent book for individuals or for a study group. Dr. Borg, I could talk with you for hours. I thank you for your work and for spending uh, time with me today on Religion for Life. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Chuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is www.fpcelizabethton.org. Information about Religion for Life, including upcoming shows and links to podcasts, can be found at our website, religionforlife.com. You can also follow Religion for Life on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM and WETS-HD1 on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. Be well.